0: Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program.
1: Well, hello, good afternoon and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival. My name is Belinda Dunstan and I am delighted to welcome you here to our session today entitled Keeping Tech in Check. Today, I hope you will all have the opportunity to have your minds changed and to hear about how other intelligences are already changing the way that we think and live. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land. I acknowledge country, its agency, autonomy and inherent intelligence. As we gather on Gadigal land to explore contemporary issues in technology, I'd like to read to you from a paper by Professor Angie Abdulla and her colleagues entitled Out of the Black Box, Indigenous Protocols for AI, which reads, For Indigenous peoples, the land or country is not separate from who we are. And if cared for differently and understood as a shared national resource, it is an infinitely bountiful gift that provides for all our needs. External rules and regulations to protect the land are not needed since the love of the land is inherent within. The same argument extends to the resources and wealth creation opportunity of AI. We understand our use of AI, if we understand our use of AI as a national resource, then issues of exclusion, privilege and ethics are addressed as part of the algorithmic process in a way that ensures bountiful opportunity for society at large. I acknowledge the Aboriginal peoples with the longest history of cultural practice and technology development and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Today I am honoured to be the moderator for this very exciting panel discussion. I am an academic at the University of New South Wales and the leader of the UNSW Creative Robotics Lab and like many of you I'm sure I have a keen interest in technology and ethics. I'm also working on the assumption that many of you are, in some way, drawn to the issues of contemporary technology and artificial intelligence, or AI. And in welcoming you all here today, I'd like to read to you from Professor Toby Walsh's newest book that we're going to be discussing today, entitled, Machines Behaving Badly. Toby says, let me begin with an observation. It's a rather uncomfortable one. There's really no easy way to put this. The field of AI attracts some odd people. (laughs) 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 Here here, Toby, you are in good company. (laughs) And with that, I would like to introduce our esteemed panel members. On my left here is Toby Walsh. Toby is one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence. He is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, and he leads research group at Data61, Australia's center for excellence in ICT research. He has been elected a fellow of the Association of the Advancement of AI for his contributions to AI research, and he has won the prestigious Humboldt Award for his research. Toby was named by the Australian newspaper as one of the rock stars of Australia's digital revolution, Although, reportedly, Toby's family think the rock star part is highly improbable. <laughs> Welcome, Toby.
2: Thank you.
1: Next, we have Elise Bowen. She is a senior research scholar at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. She holds a PhD in evolutionary mac- macrohistory, which is big history, and she wrote the world's first full-length history of transhumanism as a doctoral student and it's available out in the bookshop. Elise is the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Welcome, Elise. <clears throat> Angie Abdilla is a Palawa Chavulwe woman and she is the founder and CEO of Old Ways New. She works with indigenous knowledges and systems in the design of places, experiences and deep technologies. Angie is a professor of practice at the UNSW Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture. And she is a member of the Global Futures Council on Artificial Intelligence for Humanity as part of the World Economic Forum. She is also the recent recipient of Women in AI Creative Industries Award for Australia and New Zealand. Congratulations and welcome Angie. Thank you. So in the last month, I have had the privilege of reading publications from all three of our panelists, of of what they feel the future of technology and humanity and those intersections may be or may need to be. I feel obliged to confide, dear audience at this juncture, that their accounts are somewhat conflicting. (laughs) So, let us begin the questions, not with a whimper, but with a bang, at least. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Elise, you describe the human race, loosely, as hopelessly upright, hopelessly limited, upright, ape-brained meat sacks that fight, fuck, give birth to bowling balls and then die. And you say that unless we upgrade our cognitive functions to a more-than-human state, there's a good chance that we will exit this blue-marbled stage watching cat videos while the world burns. Uh, Well, look, while this doesn't sound like high praise for humanity, (laughs) you seem hell-bent on saving it through what you've entitled, uh, well, transhumanism. And for people who were like me before I read your book and don't know what transhumanism is, can you please tell us what it is and how you feel it can save us in what you describe as a make-or-break century?
3: Yes, sure. So to the pickle that we've just heard described... It's all true. I promise you. We don't want to believe it's true. And it's a very, very confronting thing to start thinking about. The idea that potentially we are living in a make or break century or at the hinge of history. What are the odds? The odds that any of you here were born at all were so staggeringly remote. What are the odds that you won that lottery twice and became A doubly improbable person who also happens to live at the very time in which humanity either makes its ascent to something new, using advanced technologies, using advanced science to upgrade our intelligence, to upgrade our cognitive functions, to upgrade the spectrum of human emotion and experience. Or, if we get that wrong, we're living in the century in which we're very likely to see big regresses, big existential risks come to pass. And the reason for that is because we are sitting on so many advanced, dangerous technologies that with those eight brains that Belinda was talking about, we unfortunately don't know how to wield them. We are talking about systems that are so complex that we can barely wrap our heads around them. And what we're sitting on at the moment We all know we are sitting on 70 years of nuclear weapons that we've lucked our way through. We are sitting on AI that's getting smarter almost by the hour at this point. It's been a huge month in progress towards artificial general intelligence. We're sitting on bioweapon capabilities that are getting easier to wield with less and less money and less and less training. And then of course there is that kind of iceberg on the horizon, which is climate change. This is an incredible amount to juggle. And so my argument is, we can't keep sitting in this status quo in perpetuity. We like to think we can, and we desperately wanna just after this session, go think about what we're gonna have for lunch and talk about the election and distract ourselves with comforting, things that operate at the human scale, things that feel comprehensible, that we can connect to, that can take us out of this large existential quandary that we, we face. And so I think the reason we need to start thinking like transhumanists is because we are at the hinge of history. This is potentially either the best or the worst of times. And so what transhumanism really is all about is using advanced science and technology to take what's great about humanity, to take intelligence, to take the pursuit of knowledge, to take the aspiration to unravel the mysteries of the universe, to conquer disease, to ameliorate suffering and to put as much of our energy towards that project as possible. And I believe that is the most noble and most imperative
0: goal of our times. (laughs) <laughs> can, can, I, can I somewhat disagree? <laughs> uh, the, the, the smartest person, I, one of the smartest people I've ever met was Peter Norvig, who's the head of research at Google. Uh, and he had a lovely example. And he said, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think he's incredibly smart. He's, and he said, we take a problem like the Middle East. Um, he said, I get the feeling if, if I stopped longer and thought about it or smarter minds thought about this problem, we're not gonna come up with a solution. It's not our intelligence that's gonna solve that problem, it's our humanity. And it's not more, more intelligence we need, it's more humanity. My
3: rejoinder very briefly to that is what does that mean in concrete terms? Which aspect of our, our humanity? Our superpower
0: is not our intelligence. Our superpower is our ability to work together. And that doesn't always, that's I thing that obviously is letting us down terribly in Ukraine and, um, and in Europe today. But what we have to do is work out how to work, work together better. It's our human values that bring us together that will allow our society to... And The, the values that go back 60,000 years are the ones that will allow us to live moving forward. It's, it's not being smarter. It's not increasing our intelligence that's going to do that. It's, it's actually understanding each other. But yeah, I think, a, I think not we've not got
2: a cultural
4: capacity. problem here. I think that the, the tools... There's an assumption that the tools that we design are. Are somehow in control of us. Well, in actual fact, we we are the ones who are who are in control of the tools, in, including AI. But we need. I think that the the problem at the heart of the technologies that are that we're designing right now is a cultural one. It's the cultural. Um, it's the culture at the heart of those, um, you know, design and development teams inside of these, you know, quite sort of. Um, Homogeneous environments, and they're very dislocated from community, country, the things that we know that keep us in check and in balance. That's I think you know there's nothing wrong with with um, aspiring to technologies being intelligent, and for and for um, us to have a for technologies intelligent technologies have a place within our society, but it's understanding how do we situate them within our society and how do we ensure we do that with some considered governance and regulation. And that's not necessarily the sort of regulation we all kind of assume. It's the regulation that comes back to what I believe is the law of the land. That's the sort of regulation we need, a different type of governance and different types of conversations around ethics you know there's a lot of assumptions around you know western when we talk about ethics that it's western ethics so the cultural issue that most of the technology um, corporations are experiencing are so profound but it's not necessarily i don't think it's the technology that's the problem it's the it's the culture in which they they foster Mm. Angie,
1: your research uh, centres around an approach called country-centred design. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what that is and what you think it can offer to contemporary technology development? Yeah, so um, a number of
4: years ago, quite some num- quite some years ago, I was working as a product manager and saw how detrimental these... Co- um, also, you know, interesting, but, but also quite detrimental these practices of human-centred design are when you... You know you put a small reductive often small reductive group of humans' needs at the center of all decision making when um, in particular when designing technologies and how um, devoid that is and how how um, incredibly problematic that becomes throughout all of the the uh, design the decisions that are made when when uh, both conceptualizing and designing technologies when you don't have um, uh, an understanding of the impact of those decisions and how they how they uh, result um, on both the environment, but also complex social systems. Mm. And so, when thinking about the, all of the issues that came, that that kind of really come from those practices, I thought there's a need for us to explore a different. Um, a different way of working and so that's where this, you in know, a, in, a, in the beginning it was really a framework and what we've done over the last um, eight years is is expand that out into a fully fledged methodology that looks at the role of country but also that the need to work with different um, cultural authority related to whose country you're on in a design process that enables um, a, a more complex Um, set of different, I guess, um, factors to be included
1: within the design process. Mm. I do want to come back to that as well, Angie. I just want to give Toby another chance to pick up on his comment here. Um, So Toby, I did observe in your book that you share similar concerns with Elise about the crucial point in time in which humanity finds itself. And I think uh, this is summarised well by your quote from Norbert Weiner who says, the hour is very late and the choice of good and evil knocks at our door. Um, But you come to quite starkly different conclusions about the future of humanity and machines. Uh, Spoiler alert, some of the concluding lines of Toadie's book um, (laughs) urges that our future is not fallible, superintelligence and immortality. That is the future of our machines. Our future is the opposite, ever fallible and mortal. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is in your research that lends you to that perspective that humans will always be humans and machines will always be machines?
0: Yeah, I think, well, I think it's two things. One is that by trying to replicate some of our abilities, some of our intelligence in machines, it will give us a greater insight into our own values. Trying to program machines to reflect human values will, will require us to be more precise about what those values are because machines are very literal devices. And secondly, and I think actually more importantly, and we already see this, I think, starting to appear in, in our culture, which is that the thing that will distinguish us from machines, the things that, that machines don't do well will become more and more important to our society. And they're all about they're all about our social interactions. They're all about our society, our community. Those are things that machines are not going to... Machines don't have our social intelligence. They don't have our emotional intelligence. It's not clear that they ever will. And those are the things that we value most. Those are the things in the last two years during the, the depths and the terrible things that had happened in the pandemic, the things that we realized that we missed most yeah. was being able to meet other people, yeah. being able to be. It's wonderful to be in a room full of people again um, and to share yeah. those stories with people. Those are the things that we realized that were most valuable to us. And if the machines take over some of the sweat and, 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 and take on some of those difficult problems, that's great. But the things that we will always value most are the the community that we we have around us and our society um, and and touching the land that we're on.
1: Mm. I I did notice um, a a kind of consistent uh, topic of of values and issues of equality and democracy that ran through the writing of all three of our panellists. So I do want to um, move on to talking about that. Uh, Toby, I'll come back to you. Recently uh, on UNSW's 10-Minute Genius and also in your book, you remark on growing issues of what you've entitled stupid intelligence, referring to issues of inequality, sexism, racial discrimination and other biases being amplified by the use of algorithms in determining important outcomes for people's lives from things like HSC results through to the probability of readmittance into the incarceration system. So can you tell us just a little bit more on that about your observations, that algorithms inherently, are, they inherit the flaws of the systems into which they are placed, I think is how you yes. put it. Yes,
0: well, mm. and there are, there are a number of ways that, that comes out. One is because most, most of this is machine learning algorithms that are trained on data, and data by its very nature is historical. It, it reflects the system in which it was captured. And if that system an, had racism or sexism in it, which sadly, you know, many of our systems still have, have too much racism, too much sexism, they will just reflect that. And, and worse than that, well, they're worse than humans. At least you can hold humans accountable and you can, you can ask humans for explanations. These tend to be black box systems that, that are very difficult to inspect. Um, and so they will tend to perpetuate, perpetuate uh, and even to possibly amplify the, the biases that we've been trying to get out of our society. Um, and then I'm sure we're going to come to this in a second. I mean, the, then the second point is that um, it's the rather odd group of people building the systems. <laughs> Many of them are Yes, you white. call
1: it the, uh, the sea of white dudes. <laughs> yeah. uh, um,
0: Melanie Mitchell, who's famously uh, head of ethics at Google, who was uh, famously fired as head of ethics at Google quite recently, was, came up with the phrase, the sea of... Sea of dudes or the sea of white dudes. Um, Because it is, unfortunately, still mostly white male people like myself. and um, and Unfortunately, the dial hasn't moved much. There's there's about 20% women in the field. There's a a, a disproportionate few number of of people of colour and of people of of any minority. Um, And that, unfortunately, is not changing. And that means we end up... there's, There's plentiful evidence that the right questions aren't being asked. Mm. Um, and that it would be much better if we had more diverse teams, a more inclusive product would be built if we did.
1: It's really refreshing to sit on a panel that isn't just white dudes. Yes. <laughs> uh, talking about technology. How exciting is that? Uh, Elise, you you also um, are really concerned with um, emerging issues of inequality, and you uh, you state that low status, low skilled and low IQ, or the un- or underemployed, have the weakest buy-in to reality and will face the greatest obstacles in the near future. Can you tell me about uh, that observation and also what you see as most key to minimising this growth in inequality in this future that you see as fast approaching?
3: Sure. So this is in context, this is in a chapter called the post-work society. So it's about the big economic transitions that we're going through. And it's expressing a little bit of frustration that I often feel when you hear politicians obfuscate on the issue of the future of work. They're very big on telling you on episodes of Q&A about job creation and jobs and growth and how there's going to be wonderful opportunities for your kids and your grandkids. And they skirt over the details, the fine details of what those jobs are going to be and who is going to be capable of doing them. So what we're seeing is the rise of a knowledge economy where there is ever more of a winner-takes-all situation, ever more zero-sum games, not just in the workforce itself, but in the dating and sexual marketplace, in the status games of the world, whether it's the upper echelons of law, academia, entrances into the Ivy League of the universities, there is a burgeoning middle class competing for fewer and fewer positions, and that is creating tremendous anxiety, that is creating... A situation where even in this world of radical abundance, even in this world where we are saturated by an embarrassment of riches, of entertainment and information, we still feel discombobulated. And I believe the reason we still feel discombobulated is because we have paleolithic brains in a modern world that is evolving culturally and technologically faster than we can adapt to that world. And to cycle back around to the point about inequality, I think one of the most immediate challenges facing Western democratic societies who are at kind of the forefront of considerations of universal basic income and welfare reform is that there are going to be not necessarily fewer and fewer jobs that anyone can do, but fewer and fewer jobs that are stable, that are well remunerated, that attract social status, that stop young people from feeling like they're growing up in a state of precarity, that there is no ability to plan for a normative 20th century life script anymore. And with 60% of young people now entering bachelor's degrees, we're deflating the currency of uh, university graduation and we're hyperinflating that currency so that more and more people are in higher education for longer at enormous opportunity costs and then we've got a different situation going on with people who are not going to university. Um, and I think the thing that we're unwilling to talk about in society, it's a really uncomfortable truth, but not all humans are created equal. Not everybody is as intelligent as everybody else and not everybody is capable of doing a coding boot camp and learning to just knuckle down for four years and go get a job at Google and make big bucks. That isn't realistic. So we need to start planning now in an age where automation is ramping up. We have a pandemic that is accelerating the pace of automation and the imperative to automate as of the aging populations around the world. We need policies that actually speak honestly to this issue and say, how are we going to reframe our lives? How are we going to re-inject meaning, purpose, and everything that Toby is talking about, everything that is good about humanity and human connection, we need to stop funneling young people into this credentialing arms race where everything they do is stripped away from human meaning and connection and purpose, and it's all about careerism and making money to justify their right to exist.
1: Okay. Angie, can I pass to you? Um, did you want to comment on that, or should we? I've got I've got a specific question for you, Angie. Um, and it's it's also on the issue of um, democracy and ethics and equality. In your Indigenous protocols and artificial intelligence incubator, your team managed to translate Indigenous cultural protocols into programming logic, and then. Uh, from there, they developed them into rules as code, which I just found fascinating and um, such an interesting front-runner for how we might start thinking about translating human values and ethics um, in, into machine language. Um, can you just tell us a bit more about how your team is literally bringing Indigenous voices to the table um, in the development of artificial intelligence and some of the, pros- the findings that that process has revealed?
4: Yeah, I guess the, from, from a, quite a number of years ago before starting this, the company that I run, Old Ways New, we've been really focused on how these sophisticated knowledge systems that are at the heart of this continent, and when I'm talking about knowledge systems, I'm talking about a whole array of different types of systems, so con- systems within that are inher- inherent to country, kinship systems, uh, the, and all of those various different systems have an interrelationship and interconnection. They all kind of work as one system. And when understanding how these different knowledge systems have have been supporting thousands and thousands of generations over, um, as the oldest continuum continuum of culture and the oldest living people on this planet, then surely there's some evidence there to, to suggest that the the particular design principles that are that are at the basis of these ancient technologies and different knowledge systems have proven something. That we haven't, like prior to colonisation, we were thriving, not just surviving, but thriving communities on the driest inhabited continent on the planet. So clearly there's something to be you know, looking at more deeply here. So when we have been talking about the intersection of, of in, um, indigenous culture and technology, it's not how does the tools and how does the technology enable us to express culture or support us in whatever, in whatever way, in a contemporary society. What we're really um, committed to is exploring how these different complex knowledge systems have the capacity to inform the conceptual design and development of the technologies themselves because the design principles are inherently different. They come from these core values of um, caring for country and caring for kin, and that may sound quite simple, but it's actually quite plays out in... In highly nuanced ways, in all manner of different um, design and engineering principles, but also in in the ways that um, our society has evolved. You know, it's so that so those are the things that we know are, at, are the major issue right now within the within the tech sector is the is culture. What is the culture that supports these particular um, Um, these issues that we're all facing within technology. It's a cultural one. So what we have is an opportunity to explore how do those those different design principles and different cultural values translate into protocols, so ways of doing, and into the programming logic. And so that's what we've been focused on for quite some time, like working out, well, how do we do it? How do we do it? So there's particular there's a very particular way in which automation typically occurs within, in particular, within machine learning. So, what we were focused on was looking at how do we bake in these design principles into the programming logic. And we worked out a way. We've been testing it and there's still a lot more work to be done. But one particular example that we've been, that we've actually just um, seen in action is um, we've just launched a project in Adelaide literally last night called the Tracker Data Project. And it's a four-year collaboration with um, Adam Goods and myself and Baden-Powthorpe, an artist. And over that four years, we've been looking at how Adam's player tracker data, which is, you know, over eight years of his career, the last eight years of his career, was able to um, enable us to um, explore the different cultural nuances within that data set. So typically this is data that's Come from a, a performance management tool designed to support, you know, how these, you know, particular assets to the to the league are, are managed. And but what we were able to ex- to um, explore was how these a kinship system could support a different way of entering into this data set. And in the process, we've. Um, We've created an artwork that is it's an experiential artwork, and we've enabled a different way of engaging with machine learning that's not based on utility. What we've done is we've programmed a neural network with the key attributes of Adam's kinship system, two key moieties, uh, North Wind and South Wind. And so that neural network then was fed some sound files that were um, of a creation story, the beginnings of all things that represent country. The neural network was fed these sound files, so and then the output was the two sounds of the of the wind, the north wind and south wind, and the two different the two quite distinctively different sounds. And so, what the the example shows is there's a way of using machine learning that has that that enables um, an output that has been based on cultural values and protocols, and that's just you know that's of course an experiential. Way of of, expl- of testing how this works, but it can also work I think, in a in a different environment. Like we're also testing the same framework that you mentioned with the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council. So we're designing a framework right now, which is going to be informing world leaders and the tech sector. On, um the various different phases within a li- AI life cycle and so that's the same principle essentially so you have two very quite different examples of the you know a conceptual artwork that's based on a very strong cultural principles and values and uh, and a framework that's going to be supporting the you know um, the tech sector and world leaders.
1: I think um, there's something enormously accessible and democratising about having that information available in that interactive setting. I think um, often the findings of AI or some of this machine learning can be behind the firewall of knowing how to access it or read it or learn from it, but something about having it visualised for anybody to come and see and interact with and learn from is is enormously democratising and... um, very exciting to hear about. I I was also delighted to to see emerge as a prominent uh, prominent issue in the writing of all three of these authors uh, was the impact of emerging technologies on women and on women's contributions to technology design. Uh, earlier, Toby, you you touched on the the concept of the sea of white dudes, um, but in your book, I I really appreciated seeing that you went to great lengths to enumerate the contributions of um, many women to the development of AI, in, a, in to an extent that I haven't read elsewhere. Um, can you just comment a little further on the issue of the, the sea of white dudes or the godfather of, of AI, and, and do you see this trend changing in your work?
0: Uh, unfortunately, it's, it, we'd, I'd love to know how we can move the dial on this, because mm. there are lots of initiatives. There's uh, superstars of STEM. There's there's lots of things, lots of investment by the government, lots of work that we do in the university sector and elsewhere. Um, I, I became a scientist in my local um, my local daughter's um, primary school because I thought, well, the, at least we you need know, a. unfortunately, the evidence you see is that as soon as children start can start selecting subjects, girls unfortunately start selecting away from these these subjects and and. Um, so it's a really incredibly leaky pipe. Um, and it, we, have, we have immense... There's immense crisis. There's 100,000 unfilled jobs in IT today in Australia, and that's going to uh, only get worse and worse. And yet, um, you know, half of the population is not uh, most are, are not choosing those jobs. Um, and, and equally, um, we, we, you come, to come back to the issues of inclusivity and diversity, which is the, the, the product... There are plentiful examples of tech fails that can be attributed to the fact that there weren't women or people of colour or whatever in the room asking the right questions. So um, it will be vital for the field. But uh, when when we looked at the numbers 20 years ago, it was 20% female participation in the field. Today, it's still 20% participation. It's really not moved very much at all. And it would be... Um, it's hard to know um, what we have to do. I mean, w- one thing's obvious, for example, we need um, better role models, right? So can't role models are re- really influential, but mm. when the, the media portrays pe- pe- people in this field, it's always, you know, white male people like myself. And it doesn't, um, you know, Hollywood doesn't paint a, ver- a very good story of us. So maybe we need better scriptwriters. <laughs> I'll give Hollywood a call and get them to start the ball rolling. Or, 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 you know what? But TV as well. I mean, not, let's not yeah. just claim Hollywood. It's, it's, it's also the same in TV. But, uh, but again, I mean, you know, TV doesn't you know have enough scientists in it. It's always so disappointing. Or when, when the Sydney Morning Herald puts out, you know, the, the power movers of, 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 of our society, there's barely a scientist on the list. And yet what what got us out of what is getting us out of the pandemic were scientists. It was scientists who who were advising us on epidemiology. It was scientists who were inventing the vaccines. Um, it was scientists who were building the tracking apps. It was it was wasn't the politicians.
4: And it's also really important to think to go back and think about the role of story in the relation to creation. You know, they talked about Hollywood, but if you go back further, the role of story and how we tell those stories and how we imagine the future is actually critical. How we remember, the, how we reflect on the past, but also how we tell stories into the future. Like that, it's we do need better stories about the future of AI. We do need better stories about the the role of women within technology. But I think it's also really important to remember that it's the culture within those particular environments that also needs to shift, because diversity in, and inclusion is often quite a flattened experience when you're actually working in the centre of it. And often it gets reduced to, you know, more brown skinned people working within the machine or more women, but not necessarily understanding or how you facilitate a space, a healthy working environment to enable cultural diversity, to inform the different design decisions, but also the different practices that, um, that can come from those culturally diverse environments.
1: Mm. Elise, um, from your perspective, do you... What's it been like for you coming up in a male-dominated field? Do you see, uh, do you experience that to the same extent, or do you see that changing in your peers and the people around you?
3: Well, to be really clear, I'm not a scientist. I've spent most of my career in humanities departments. I'm currently employed by a philosophy department at the University of Oxford. That is a male-dominated workplace. And I'm somebody who, To be perfectly honest, is not the least bit interested in what colour skin my peers have, what genitals or sex or chromosomes they have. I'm interested in the content of their character and the substance of their ideas. I absolutely buy what Toby and Angie are saying, that as a general principle, adding diversity into problem solving and intellectual culture is a good and important thing and it should be encouraged. But I do wonder when we talk about, well, how do we get from 20% to a higher number? My question is, what's the objective of the higher number? And where are we hoping to get? And what might the knock-on consequences be? So if we had better role models, my first question is, if society was saturated with whiz-bang stories of wonderful female AI engineers and scientists and astronauts, would A cascade of young women think, great, I'm going to sign up for a computer science degree. My instinct is no. And I think there are really strong biological reasons why we're very unlikely to ever see anything resembling 50-50 in computer science departments, engineering departments, and math departments.
4: Mm, I totally disagree. I think you have to be able to see to become, like, if you can't see... Um, then it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that you have a, a place and a role
3: within that world. But if we have 20% reputation already and we're trying really, really hard with the superstars of STEM, with all the initiatives and we're still not shifting the envelope, my money goes straight to there's still a biological problem and the biological problem is that women bear children. And that tears them between two worlds. And that means they have to make complex decisions in their careers and their reproductive and romantic lives. It is but that's, very- But that's
0: not, that's not held out by, for example, there are more, far more women in biology. There's
3: there a are. science,
0: right? So there's, it's not, you, you're telling me there's something inherently biological about artificial intelligence. Because there's not something inherently biological about science. Because no, there were more women participating in science. And they have the same career problems, the same child having to, take time out to have children and so on.
3: Yeah, so then right? we, and we can, that... And we
0: can fix those things, right? We can, as a society, we can become more like Scandinavia and provide adequate, decent childcare.
3: OK, but in, <laughs> in biology... That's not biological, that's societal. In biology you still have women massively underrepresented at the very highest levels, the Toby Walsh levels of science. You don't yeah, see women. Yeah, but there's the
0: historical inequity there, uh, and the members of the academy are still male, male white people who are still electing themselves. It takes many years to get rid of those inequities.
3: OK, there's still another biological element, though, which is average sex differences in verbal abilities, social and emotional intelligence, in which, on average, women score higher. We tend to... In- on average, not everybody, be more interested in people than we are in things. And men tend to skew much more interested in abstract concepts, tend to be more interested in things than people. And it affects the career decisions that we make, which is why I'm someone, for example, who absolutely could learn to code. And I absolutely don't want to. I do not want to sit in front of a screen in a horrible cubicle all day, typing lines of abstract code into a computer, because I don't care. I think what code can do and what we can unleash through the people that have the temerity and the patience and the wiring for that, that's wonderful. But it's okay if a lot of women like me think, I'd rather tell stories, I'd rather learn about history, I'd rather have some children, I'd rather be a nurse. I think it's okay to make those choices too. Any woman who has a burning passion to be a physicist, an engineer, any STEM profession, there should be no barriers to entry. We should encourage them. We should create cultures in which they feel supported and comfortable. But trying to foist careers on women, some proportion of whom don't want them, that is not a recipe for a flourishing intellectual culture or a flourishing society in my view.
1: But... um I am a little confused. Uh, in your book you describe pregnancy as old tech and you say that childbirth and breastfeeding are the remaining Achilles heel of feminism. So you must feel that um, in some way the, these primary biological functions of women are inhibiting other abilities or they wouldn't be described so negatively. Is that true or?
3: Not quite. Right. So I'm te- talking in terms of trade-offs here. And I think women just come with more complex sets of trade-offs as a byproduct of their biology, right? Men have small motile gametes, sperm. Women have larger static gametes, and that affects so much about how our lives unfold. Um, in terms of pregnancy, breastfeeding, and childbirth being the final Achilles' heels of feminism, I mean that in the context of a modern culture where we have expectations, particularly in the post-contraceptive pill age, where women can do anything, say anything, be anything, have careers, have families, and have it all. And the reality, the stark, uncomfortable reality, is that it's still a juggling act, and there is no social policy in the world as long as that biological imperative remains. That means it's not going to be a strain Yes, we should encourage policies that make it less of a strain. Yes, we should have better early childcare and early childhood education. Yes, we should have subsidies for people that have children. But there is a two worlds issue here. We have the interim transitional phase that we're living through in which we need to support mothers and families more. We need to talk honestly about the trade-offs between motherhood and personhood or work and family life. And then we need to think about possible futures in light of our evolved cultural expectations of what's possible. A world in which we all want to be all kinds of things that our Paleolithic ancestors could not have imagined. A world where perhaps we will have artificial wombs. Perhaps mothers and fathers will get to meet their children in the same way that has historically been reserved for fathers. Perhaps meat-sack existence itself gets transcended. Sex disappears. I'm talking further into the future here, but this is all in context. When I talk but, 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 but about when, pregnancy, childbirth. St- but when
0: you st- put aside um, pregnancy, right, and we, we could we could go down artificial pregnancy and that route. But but once the child is born, it, it's, it's, it's no longer a biological difference between men and women. If we if we organise our society, uh, and we look again to what happens in Scandinavia countries, you can organise a society so men or women can take equal responsibility. There's but they nothing... don't,
3: even in Scandinavia. It yeah, doesn't, but, but, they don't take equal paternity but that's, a, it's
0: not, that's not a biological choice. That's a societal Mothers, choice.
3: Mothers, hands up if you think when your child was born, it was a level playing field with
0: the father. It's, it's not a level playing It's for, not, biological. It's, not it's, it's, it's not a level playing field. We a don't have equal paternity issue. rights. Uh, paternity leave rights and things like this and there isn't the culture there isn't the support to say that if you want to take a time out um, men are not not uh, supported in the way that the women are poorly supported in the way and that, that, but that's all about society there's not inherent biology to that
4: yeah you know I think what we're really what we should be talking about is the you know this concept of waged work is a really recent phenomena and it's if you think back to, you know, prior the Industrial, late in the Industrial Revolution, you know, the types of ways that communities were organised and how we were working was fundamentally different. And if you go back even further and look at all sorts of other different Indigenous cultures, there's no concept of waged work. There are different cultural responsibilities and there's different ways of understanding natural resource management and the distribution of wealth the distribution of resources so that you have a fair and equitable society that is based on the on on some core principles about living within your means and living with some responsibility and some and sustainability sustainability and the care of what you have now and planting the seeds for future generations so these these you know i think the problem right now that we're facing has so much of it comes back to the, the assumed business models that are at the heart of all of these different types of technologies, but also the society, the policies that we're living within. And it's based on these, this um, assumption that we need to create more um, accumulation instead of distribution.
0: Hmm. What, what work is the only truly obscene four-letter word? <laughs> I, 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 I mean, there's a bit of my book where I talk about people forget the weekend is an invention of the Industrial Revolution. Why is it that we get Saturday and Sunday off? Well, that's because the benefits of automation um, brought around the invention of steam engine and electrification allowed workers, first of all in the northeast of England, to demand Sunday off to go to church and then um, with greater productivity to demand Saturday off. But um, if you look at you know, various indigenous cultures, when food is plentiful, they don't work all the time. They, they sit around and... And, and do, you know, more pleasant things. Um, and, and this idea that we have to keep accumulating wealth and growth at all costs. Um, we could have a three-day weekend. Um, there's, there's no reason Everyone why. Everyone agrees they, with that one. There's <laughs> lots but, uh, And, there, you know, there were the experiments in New Zealand, companies in New Zealand and the UK, trialling a three-day weekend and discovering two really important facts. One is that people are just as productive in four days of work as five. So you don't have to pay them any less. They can afford to live just as well. And secondly, and who would have imagined this, they're happier. (laughs) (laughs) They spend more time with their families, they spend more time in their communities, they spend more time fishing or making art, or whatever it is that's important Mm. to them. Not, you know, feeding and clothing themselves. Those are the sorts of choices that technology could bring us and buy Mm. us. The the future that we could choose.
4: Yeah, I mean, we were so close to to achieving the um, uh, universal basic income by default through COVID. We've been so close, like COVID has brought a, a, has revealed a whole array of different types of opportunities that have, you know, unfortunately they seem to be a bit of a distant memory now. But, you know, there were, there there was, the moment was there, you know, all of a sudden we could have shifted the, um, how we demonize a whole section of our community for not having work. Into a, a, a whole different type of culture that supports a very different way of of inclusivity and diversity within our community, and being able to put meaning back into people's lives by not demonising people
0: because to not enough peop- to go around those people who are you know on the poverty line were uh, their mental health improved dramatically, anxiety dropped, um, and these people were, were given an opportunity to actually make something with their lives for once. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm, I'm so sorry to bring things uh, to a close. We've got, we've got 10 minutes remaining. I, I have to say I'm so encouraged to see such healthy debate on what are obviously incredibly um, important and ripe issues that are emerging at the moment, and this is what needs to happen, and I'm very encouraged to see um, a diversity of voices um, boldly debating these issues. We have nine minutes, and I'm sure <laughs> many of you have questions. If you do, please make your way to the front, this lovely gentleman who has a microphone, um, and we can take a couple of questions to the panel. Please. To the panel, I I want to ask you, in the balancing act, could they do something like an experiment of FUGO, I said female Google. Where Google takes a section and lets just women, let all the women do something amazing and do the same jobs, and then have a positive, competitive nature, as opposed to just what's negative. What do you think? Sounds, sounds,
0: this? A, sounds a fun experiment. I suspect that the men in charge are going to be desperately worried at the idea. <laughs> the women are going to do so much better. So best not to let them That's try. A good
4: thing. <laughs> at least we'll be surviving.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I do agree that we need to continue to move in equity before we achieve equality um, and making spaces an opportunity um, for voices that haven't historically been heard on these matters. Do we have any further questions? Yes, please, come on down.
2: Thank you for rousing and very respectful debate. I feel like that's really hard to achieve um, in a public context, so thank you for for doing that. Um, my question, um, I feel like you guys have kind of covered this, but I, I kind of wanted to see if there was a way I could ask a question that could ground the discussion. But um, So my question was this. I'll try and be succinct. Um, Yuval Noah know talked a lot about the idea of something that Toby mentioned before, which is black boxes. So um, structures in, in AI where there is this degree to which um, technological development is is far outstripping our capacity to actually work within the parameters of what we're developing. Um, And I get concerned about the idea that, um, are we wearing the clothes or are the clothes wearing us? So you have such a diversity of perspectives um, and intelligence and knowledge. And I I don't know if I could hope to try and and distill any of that. But my question was, do you each have like a practical suggestion for how we deal with the idea of both moving forward in intelligence and in moving forward in terms of um, how we, how we uh, interface with the idea of, of technology um, developing beyond our potential.
1: One minute each. <laughs> uh, sorry.
2: <laughs> we need to... <laughs>
1: Thanks,
4: humans in the loop. We need to keep humans in the loop so that there are no mysterious black boxes, but not only humans in the loop, we need to center country in the designing of these technologies. So actually factor in like, how are these decisions being made affecting our environment and all of the different complex systems at play, all the time, every single decision.
1: Thank you, Edgy.
3: Literally, humans in the loop. Chips in your brain, people. So, (laughs) (laughs) if you do not want to be left behind, there needs to be some way of augmenting the ape brain, the human intelligence, because prognosticating about how we just rip something wonderful out of our innate humanity that's somehow gonna rescue us at the last second, not going to work, either. AI systems become general intelligent, become super intelligent, and supersede us. Just go off on their own, or we make some attempt to integrate
0: with them. I think there's some decisions we should just never give to machines, um, and we should thank you know authors like George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, who've painted <laughs> the dystopian future that you will end up in if you if you hand some of those. Really critical decisions to machines, and so there are some places where we should never, even if machines can do this, even if machines can make better decisions, even if a machine could better decide um, who's going to commit a crime or, or, or whatever, we should still not hand those decisions to machines because that will be giving up our essential humanity.
3: That assumes we're in control.
0: And secondly, like 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 all human institutions, we we embed. We embed those machines in institutions that protect us. We have institutions that protect us from other humans. Um, And humans aren't particularly transparent. Um, I I put my my life in the hands of my doctor, um, and she's not transparent. But I know there is an institution around her, systems in place, that I can put my trust in her. And equally, we need those institutions around the artificial intelligence that is maybe helping us so that we can put our lives without having them, even though they're black boxes and we don't trust them.
1: Mm. I did warn you that they were <laughs> conflicting opinions. So uh, look, we've got time for one minute. Question, please. Okay. Uh, I don't know how quick you can answer this, but I am fascinated by the idea of like biological or social implications of gender and our relationship to technology, right? So I guess, do you think in, there will be a time in the future where this effect, biological or social object, like effect of gender will be nullified?
3: Yes, I do. Um, Yeah, I think we're in a transition phase where we're seeing that. Like socially, culturally, we're playing with gender more and more and we're embracing a greater fluidity that I believe is not merely just where we're going to plateau. I believe that this is a harbinger of a larger transition in which we use ever more advanced technologies to reconfigure our relationship to love, sex, embodiment and gender itself and it's eminently plausible that we reach a state where we're either uploaded beings or we've been superseded by AI systems in which the concept of gender is minimally relevant or has become obsolete.
1: Thank you so much Elise. Uh, I hope today has offered you all some insight into the incredibly diverse and difficult discussions that are taking place in research, tackling some of humanity's newest problems. If you are interested in reading a little bit more about either of uh, Toby or Elise's perspective, you can find these publications, and I believe there are links online as well to Angie's publications. Um, they will be available for signing books after the panel. I would like to offer a huge thank you to our panel members for their generosity in sharing their time and thoughts with us today. Thank you so much, panel.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.